Welcome to this episode of the Better Goods podcast. I have a very interesting guest, David Mannheim, who is uh, head of biosecurity at Guarding Against Pandemics and guest researcher at the Technion. Uh, hi, David. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're here to talk today about something that's not often considered existential risks, which are risks that could eliminate humanity. Uh, could you sh- shed some light on what these are and why we should take them seriously? Yeah, so I think uh, the first thing I would, I would say about uh, the topic is um, you know, Joseph Stalin says famously that uh, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And I think that that's true and false in that um, our brains don't think about large numbers um, in ways that we can kind of connect to, but a million deaths is a million tragedies. Um, and a billion deaths would be a billion tragedies. Um, and um, we don't have kind of a, a, a good way to kind of mentally connect with that. Um, but uh, for obvious reasons, um, 7 billion or 8 billion deaths would be seven or eight times worse than um, a billion deaths. But it would be even far worse than that because it would not only mean that people died um, individually, which would be obviously tragic, um, but it would also mean the end of humanity as a species. Um, and so the question is, um, I think, first of all, um, is that a thing that could happen? Um, and second of all, uh, in what ways and what can we do about it? Um, so I think that a lot of the discussions started with, you know, should we think that this is an issue at all? And then when people came to the, the, I think, correct conclusion that yes, this is something that is unlikely, at least in the short term, but, but very possible, um, the, the discussion shifted to what do we need to focus on and, and how can we reduce these risks? So from a very long-term perspective, what are the biggest risks hu- uh, humanity faces? So I think that um, there's, a pretty robust consensus that um, there are very unlikely natural, uh, naturally caused um, sources of existential risk. Um, you know, uh, the the type of um, event that killed the dinosaurs is, you know, possible. Um, it has happened. Um, you know, large large impacts on Earth would certainly be the type of thing that we would be concerned about. Um, very large supervolcanoes, um, you know, naturally caused pandemics. These are all things that we know happen, um, but are very rare. Um, the likely events, almost all of the likely events are human caused. Um, and, you know, since the advent of nuclear weapons, at least, there has been the, the concern that um, humanity could, in fact, kill itself off completely. Um, the, the most concerning uh, events, I think, from that perspective are um, nuclear war, though it does seem unlikely that a nuclear war would kill everyone. Um, uh, bioengineered pandemics, which again, it seems plausible that that would be very, very bad. And, and we absolutely need to be concerned about it. Um, and then a number of uh, kind of more esoteric and less 
certain risks um, that we're very concerned about. For instance, uh, nanotechnology, um, where you know making nanomachines that could uh, could destroy a vast you know uh, a tremendous amount um, it seems plausible, even if we don't know. And I think the the big one that is very controversial, but I think the fact that it's controversial tells us that that we're unsure is artificial intelligence, where um, we can at least imagine that um, advanced artificial intelligence that is built with the wrong goals um, could decide that it's uh, that, that it is better off, that its goals are better served um, without humans around. Um, so I, I think that that's most of the list of what we're concerned about. Um, though I will say, um, the question is always evolving as technology evolves, and um, we're likely to find out which things we need to be more concerned about in the future um, as well. Now, a lot of these um, risks you mentioned are direct byproducts of economic growth and technological ad advancement, right? A hundred years ago, we didn't have any of these. And um, the only good argument I've heard against economic growth, the, the, the degrowth argument is that it increases the risk of uh, the world ending. So in your opinion, uh, do you think that there is a case for slowing economic growth to reduce the rate at which existential risks increase? Yeah, so I, I think that um, there, there are two pieces here. The, the first one is, um, I think, a realism argument um, where you can ask, you know, should we do this? Well, um, should we change physics so that nuclear bombs no longer work? Um, I mean, maybe like if, if that was a thing we could do, if we could eliminate nuclear weapons without like fundamentally destroying physics, well, we, we don't have any idea how to do that. It's not a thing that, that even makes sense. Um, should we change society so that the incentives that exist are no longer for economic growth? I, I don't, I don't think that that's really even a, a kind of coherent set of things that we could um, <laughs> move towards. Like, I, I don't think that that's, you know, we, we do have to be realistic about what it is that humans are interested in, you know, mm -hmm. able to do. Um, I also don't think that it would be, uh, you know, the, the types of things that are within our capacity, you know, uh, to slow um, economic growth, to slow technological growth. Um, there are things we could do. I don't think they would be particularly effective. I don't think that they would um, actually do a great job at reducing risks. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't think that it's a, a useful discussion. Um, what okay. I do think is important is looking at which technologies we invest in and which ones we prioritize. Um, and this is kind of the obvious um, case of, you know, if, if we had um, spent all of our time, um, you know, looking for, uh, clever ways to use nuclear weapons to kill one another and no time um, thinking about the infrastructure for coordinating to uh, reduce risk of accidental nuclear war. Um, we would have had the close calls that we had over the past decades would in fact have ended very badly. Um, you know, thankfully, we spent at least some time looking at you know, the, the need for communication among world leaders to prevent um, accidental escalation. We, we spent some time talking about um, detection systems to figure out what's happening so that everybody knows that 
Um, you know, setting off a nuclear weapon is something that you can't do quietly or secretly. Um, so I, I think that this is true across many other domains of research. Um, we need to pay attention to which things we're prioritizing. Um, and, and I think that that's absolutely something that we can do. We can look at um, you know, doing less research that advances uh, potential offensive uses of uh, technology and um, you know, makes defensive uses or makes safety uses easier or more viable. All right, fair. Yeah, those are more or less my views. Also, the uh, next question I I would would have is most leaders, most listeners don't very well appreciate the risk of nuclear war and the close calls that have happened. Could you give a few examples? Maybe outside the obvious one of the Cuban of the Cuban missile crisis of how close we have been to, if not existential, a very very large portion of of humanity ending. Yeah, so I think that um, the, the actual, the, the obvious example in my mind um, was at the, the first nuclear weapons test where the nuclear scientists were, um, you know, talking about what it is that would happen when there was a nuclear explosion. And there was um, a lot of uncertainty about some of the key variables and exactly how the, um, you know, the, the fission reaction would happen. And, and um, one of the concerns that they had um, was that um, it's possible that that things would get hot enough and that the way that reactions would happen um, would cause um, oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere to start a chain reaction, um, a chain fission reaction, which would have um, destroyed all of Earth, um, a runaway chain reaction of, of fusion of oxygen. Uh, and it turns out, obviously, that that is not the case, that, that nuclear weapons do not do not cause that, that the, the physics doesn't work out that way. But when they set off the first um, nuclear weapon, they weren't sure. They, were, they had done some of the math. They thought it was relatively unlikely, but, but not absolutely obvious. Um, and that seems like a bad decision. Um, you want to be very, very sure that you're not going to um, end all life on Earth when you're, um, when you're doing your, your research. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that's a particularly controversial claim. Um, there have been a number of other... Uh, close calls. I think it's unlikely that any of the actual um, cases of potential nuclear escalation would have led to an existential risk um, because um, a nuclear war would be devastating and would kill um, almost certainly multiple billions of people, um, but lots of people wouldn't be anywhere nearby um, and, and humans would almost certainly survive many places, um, even, even after a nuclear winter. Um, so I, I think that those aren't examples of, um, you know, near misses of existential risks, but there were certainly a number of um, near misses for, um, for, yeah, for, for nuclear war. And one of the uh, biggest criticisms I personally have is that it, outside of a small group of people, like unless you, you work in the White House or the Kremlin or certain senators' offices, you have no way of preventing a lot of nuclear war, uh, a, a lot of nuclear ex-risk. Uh, but the EA community spends a, spends a lot of, well, not a lot of, uh, a greater deal than would be implied by my observation on um, preventing nuclear war. Uh, 
am I wrong here, or 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 is there actually, or is, is the problem just not tractable? Um, so there's a there's a story that I heard kind of third hand. I can't I can't attest to exactly what happened, but when when uh, one of the large EA funders was getting started and trying to figure out what they could do, um, they talked to some of the kind of nuclear weapons um, proliferation reduction um, groups about what it is that they could do. What you know what what could you invest in that would reduce the risk of nuclear war? Um, and they said, well, you know, we, we have some ideas about um, promoting um, engagement of, of scientists, and we have some things that we're doing um, to kind of uh, make sure that the high-level dialogues um, that exist continue and that they're supported. Um, and I think that all of those things do have some impact in, um, but, you know, they, they said, so th those are the things that we think we've been doing and do, and like, you know, um, you know, a million dollars in funding or so would be like a, a great way to be able to enable a lot of those things. Um, and the funders said, okay, but like, what, what could you do with like a hundred million dollars? And the, the experts said nothing, like there's, there's nothing feasible to do with, he said, what about like $10 billion? Um, and realistically, you couldn't go to any country on earth and tell them, here's $10 billion to get rid of your nuclear weapons. It's just like, they, that's not, you're talking about the wrong thing. You can't, you know, you could offer a trillion dollars and, and, you know, um, India and Pakistan or Israel or the United States or Russia, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even consider, um, you know, what, you know, okay, it's, it's, you know, 10 times their, their, you know, the, their, their GDP. Yeah, still it's, that's not, that's not something that you can, kind of spend money to do. Um, so I, I agree with you uh, to some extent that, yeah, that's not something you can kind of directly address. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, making sure that people in positions that are able to affect this um, have the support they need to do things that would reduce the risk seems like a really obvious thing to make sure you, you do. Um, so I, I think that there are a bunch of places where we can have some marginal impact um, even if you're right that directly kind of reducing the risk of nuclear war is, is infeasible. What are those places, at least outside working on the red hot line, as, as it's sometimes called? Yeah, so I, I think, um, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll back up from, from nuclear war and talk about biological weapons, maybe. Okay. Um, so... Um, Bioweapons are banned by international treaty. Um, nuclear weapons, obviously, proliferation is banned, but countries that already have nuclear weapons are allowed to keep them, just not to use them. Um, but even developing biological weapons is banned. Um, similarly, you know, chemical weapons are banned. Um, so the, there's a biological weapons convention, and actually, um, uh, fortuitously, today is the um, 50th anniversary of the first country signing the bioweapons convention. Um, which is a tremendous um, you know, achievement. But um, the Bioweapons Convention has been historically um, about as effective as you would expect a kind of international treaty to be in that there's a lot of fighting um, between delegates and um, name calling at the, the 2020 or 2021 um, conference. At one point, the uh, Russian delegate um, uh, was upset about the Ukrainian claims that Russia had said that it had um, biological weapons, something that's obviously turned back up in the news. Um, and the Russian delegate uh, said, you know, 
liar, liar, pants on fire uh, to the Ukrainian delegate <laughs> in the middle of, right? It's, it, it's very childish, but, but that's, a, so, so yeah. So how effective are these organizations? Well, not nearly as effective as we want them to be. We, we can't, you know, it'd be great if we could get everybody to act like adults. Um, on the other hand, um, they are what we have. Um, and uh, a number of years ago, one of the Biological Weapons Convention meetings um, was that was supposed to be, I believe, um, uh, five days was cut short by a day um, because they didn't have funds to hold the rest of the meeting. Um, and that's crazy. Like there, there are, okay, if, if the countries can't get along with one another and you can't make progress, then that's a problem and we need to figure out how to address it. And, and there are people who work on that and it's a, it's a valuable thing to do. But um, if they don't have the money to finish holding the meeting, that's something that you can fix. Um, and, and since then, by the way, yeah, that, that, you know, a number of organizations have stepped up to make sure that like the funding is available for, you know, operating funds are available for them. Um, there's some complexity around how it is that you fund international agreements and non-state parties can't do things, but, but, you know, it's, it's been kind of, um, that's been addressed, but it needed to be addressed. You know, it's the kind of thing that um, uh, I think people assume that there won't be any low-hanging fruit in terms of how to fix problems. And often there just is. You just need somebody to show up and say like, hey, like, is there something we can do to address this? Is there something we can do to um, you know, actually materially change how it is that this works? Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think there are a lot of places where that's true across a number of um, domains that if, if people are willing to get involved, there are things that can be done that are effective. You work on biosecurity at preventing future pandemics. What's, uh, what is your role in involved and how do you uh, reduce the risk of some, of some pathogens killing all of us? Um, so there are, there are a bunch of, so uh, gardening against pandemics is a, um, is a U.S. based um, political action committee um, that kind of engages directly mm -hmm. with policymakers that uses, you know, that um, uh, donates to campaigns and attempts to um, find, um, find uh, candidates and um, people in positions to be able to do something that are sympathetic to the goal of um, not having future pandemics. Um, and I, I, I feel like um, I, this is this is almost silly, but but not having future pandemics seems good. We should we should try and do that. Um, I, I don't know um, what it is that I need to uh, explain in order to convince people of that. Um, but I, I think mostly people are completely on board with um, that. And the question is just how do you allocate resources and how do you actually do that? Um, so my role is mostly on the policy side. Um, what types of policies could be proposed? What types of policies are, are viable and could be passed that would actually um, materially reduce the risks um, of future pandemics? And we're focused on both um, making sure that everything is in place, that future, future natural pandemics are stopped before they start. Um, so that is, we want to prevent them. Um, as, as everybody has seen, um, stopping pandemics is very, very hard once they're pandemics. Um, but uh, as I think fewer people paid attention to, few pe people notice, 
Um, we've stopped a lot of emerging diseases over the past 20, 30, 40 years um, when we noticed them. Um, Ebola, um, there have been outbreaks, right? Uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, SARS-1, um, you know, things have popped up, things have emerged and, and they were stopped. They were just stopped. They never, they never continued spreading. Um, I don't think that the world in um, you know, 1900 would have been capable of stopping the outbreak of a natural pandemic. We are now, um, maybe not every pandemic, it, it, it's possible. Um, I've seen people claim, and I, I don't know, you know, I don't think there's, there's a question that's answerable. It may have been that, that COVID was too transmissible and too difficult to stop for us to be able to do it. Um, that, you know, even if we had actually managed to convince people to shut things down, even, um, I don't think that's obvious, um, but I certainly think that um, we could develop methods and technologies that would allow us to manage it in the future. Um, we, we, we know where to invest the money to develop prototype vaccines for future, um, for future families of pathogens. Um, you know, we, we know how to do that. It's just a question of actually doing it. Um, so a lot of my, my work is kind of talking to people, coming up with policies and convincing people to um, actually kind of move these policies forward, to actually fund them, to actually make sure that um, the next time we have a emerging disease that everybody writes off as this probably isn't going to turn into anything, we also do all of the things to make sure that it actually doesn't turn into anything. Um, so yeah, I, that's, uh, that's, that's what I kind of try and spend my time on. Um, for me and you, it seems very obvious that we should do what uh, guarding against pandemics wants, but uh, which is like, you know, you want better masks and safer buildings and so on. But what is the mental gap to uh, the elected representatives of several countries to doing this, right? Some countries do it. I know Singapore does some work on biodefense and so on, but not many countries have this, although it's very, very important to them. And should be most important to, to the largest two economies, China and the US. What is the, the, the mental block or what's, what's, what's stopping them from, from doing this? So I, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, the first one is that um, uh, politics and government, they're, they're slow processes. Um, they just they they don't they don't work quickly and and it takes continued pressure over multiple years to get things to kind of actually happen um, and that's just kind of an inevitable part of working into a domain with very large organizations that um, you know can't can't change their mind can't can't change what they do um, on a dime um, so I think that part of it is just we need to keep moving um, I I think that there are, you know obviously there's been a lot of um, success. Um, uh, in kind of making us safer overall. Um, we managed to get a vaccine in a year, despite everybody saying that it would take, you know, five or more, um, because we've been investing in these things. We, we need to do more. Um, it's also hard to change people's minds. It's hard to move things forward. Um, there's also, there are pieces where um, people aren't convinced that this is the right thing to do. So I think, um, you know, indoor air is one of these areas where, I think it's very overdetermined that we should, um, you know, make new buildings um, that are, you know, that already have the filtration systems that would get rid of um, pathogens. And obviously, this will cost money. Um, retrofitting old buildings, uh, you know, would be 
much more expensive. But I think um, you know, even even insisting on this for new buildings, it will cost money. Um, you know, that's a that's a major decision that needs to be made, um, and convincing people of it is hard. Um, but I think the other the other part of why this is hard um, is frustrating and important. Um, the other day there was a um, there was an article that talked about you know we need we need reform to combat threats to health security, which obviously we do. We need to deal with these things. We need to fix it. Um, uh, but one of the lines uh, in the article was COVID-19 will not be the last pandemic the United States will face. Um, and I don't think that needs to be true. Um, I, I fundamentally think that we could in fact prevent future pandemics instead of needing to be ready to fight them when they come. I think that there's a mindset um, a lot of places that, um, you know, some things are inevitable, that, that certain types of, of things will always be with us, that, um, you know, that progress is impossible, but it's not. Very like, obviously it's not. Like team's mindset. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that, that there's, you know, um, if, you work in, um, if you work in health security, you're focused on um, what it is that's possible now, as you should be, because your job is to, um, you know, increase, you know, health security now. You're supposed to be doing things that actually improve things now. But what that means is that there is some level of myopia, um, uh, you know, the, the short-sightedness of, of looking at what can happen now. I think the same thing is true, for instance, um, when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, where a lot of people are very um, skeptical of the idea that um, artificial intelligence, um, you know, could be a danger in the future because we can't even get self-driving cars not to hit things. Um, and they're right. We, like, we, we, we haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, and current artificial intelligence is remarkably dumb compared to humans, though getting better in many ways. Um, but it seems crazy to think that we don't have to, we don't have to worry that, you know, um, look, before I retire, I expect kind of pretty strongly for there to be um, artificial intelligence systems um, that are um, human-like in many ways. Um, like that, that seems um, very likely. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe it'll take another you know uh, 50 years. Maybe maybe it won't happen during my lifetime. But my kids are growing up, um, and during their lifetime it will. And you know I don't want them to um, deal with another COVID-19. I certainly don't want them to deal with another um, worse thing. I, you know there are a lot of things out there that we can deal with that um, people are myopic about in ways that I think are very counterproductive. We need to be thinking about. Um, not just what it is that we can do to stop pandemics this year and next year and, and in five years, but also in 10 and 20 years. Um, and that means that we can actually be doing the things that would make them not happen at all. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you about AI this, because until very recently, I was skeptical that the problem is tractable. I agree that it's a problem, but for, but for a long time, I believed that, oh, but, that is not a problem we can deal with right now because we don't know what future technologies we'll have and we don't know what um, specific problems we will face into the uh, future. What is your, and, and, and several smart friends of mine like put that to me. What's your answer to, to, to that question? Um, so the first thing um, is um, if you think it's a problem, um, then the question uh, we should ask isn't, um, you know, what are we sure can help, but 
what has a chance of helping, right? If, if you're, you know, um, somebody's uh, um, stuck in a pit with no way out, um, they, have two, they have two options. They can say, look, like I can't climb the walls. I'm stuck. I, I can't get out of here. Um, or they can keep thinking about it. And maybe, maybe they don't come up with anything, right? But, but maybe they do. It's, it's silly for them to, you know, like just give up hope. Um, uh, you know, do I think that it's likely that, that, uh, that this month somebody will come up with the solution for solving um, artificial intelligence alignment, making sure that it doesn't do things that we're um, concerned about? No, I, I don't think that's likely. Um, do I think that um, decades of research into the problem um, will significantly marginally improve our chance to succeed? Yes. Like, I think, I think that um, we don't know enough about the problem to be sure that we will fix it. We don't know about the problem to be sure we won't. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of these known unknowns. Um, so um, you know, that doesn't mean we should not be continuing to do research on artificial intelligence. Um, but it does mean that we should kind of shift some of the focus to um, how do you make sure it does what you want instead of um, failing in currently mostly humorous, but in the future, potentially very, very scary ways? On an individual basis, what can people do? I, I know there's, a, there's an entire organization devoted to this problem, 80,000 hours. They're great people. But where do you differ from the uh, emerging consensus that, uh, from the em emerging consensus, however you define it on where people should spend their, their efforts on? Um, so I, I don't know that I, I really differ so much from the, the emerging consensus. I will say um, uh, one, one piece is um, people, people have often been told um, as children, you know, follow your dreams, do what you, do what you think you'll enjoy in the future. Um, and I think that that's um, bad advice only because it doesn't pay enough attention to reality. It doesn't pay enough attention to um, kind of um, if the thing you enjoy doing is um, lying in bed all day, you're not going to get paid to do that. Um, but, but you should pay attention to, um, you know, what it is that you enjoy more or less. Um, you should pay attention to what it is that is more or less tractable in terms of improving the world. Um, you know, I, I had um, somebody uh, post something saying, you know, like, I, I don't do anything that can contribute to, um, like, dealing with these problems. Um, I do like school curriculum design. I'm like, I don't know what I can do to, to materially impact um, these things. What do you mean? Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, we, we absolutely need people doing curriculum design around some of the things that we think are important risks around, um, you know, curricula for AI safety, curricula for um, better understanding bio-risk, curricula for, uh, for career planning to, to be impactful. Like, there, there are lots of things. I, I think there's almost no one um, who, who doesn't have the potential to find things that they are suited for um, in this field. That doesn't mean that people should um, uh, pick the thing that they want to do and then, you know, uh, go pursue that and then ask, like, now that I am a uh, underwater diver, um, you know, uh, I, do, I do scuba um, for, for a living, what can I do to reduce existential risk? I think that's, that's the wrong way to approach it. Um, but I also think that um, for most people, for the vast majority of people, um, looking at 80,000 hours list of top jobs and just picking whichever one is at the top and assuming that they'll be able to do that is also not 
a great way to do that. Like you, you do need to pay attention to what you're interested in and what you're good at. Not, not because like, you know, self-fulfillment is the most important thing, but just because you won't be good at things that you're not good at. Um, I think that most people can, um, you know, actually spend some time thinking about and looking around and trying to figure out what they can be doing. Um, and if they don't have any ideas, they should, you know, book a call with 80,000 hours and ask them because they have career advisors who are happy to help you think about this. Um, but saying, I don't know what I can do to help with these big problems seems, um, yeah, I, I, I don't believe that anybody has spent time really thinking about this and came to the conclusion that there's literally nothing they can do. No, I, I agree. But like the big assumption behind this is that most people I know who are not into this social sphere are like, man, I don't care about these, somebody else's problem, which is a difficult problem to, to tackle, possibly the hardest problem to tackle. We might be able to solve AI safety, but I don't think we'll be able to solve the problem of, of people saying they don't care about next generation. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's true. I, I don't think that everybody will care about um artificial intelligence safety. I don't think everybody will care about um, biosecurity. I, I do think everybody, you know, it's amazing how much people started, you know, there, there's, a, there's a generation of people who know more about uh, epidemiology than anybody but the experts um, now that, now that COVID-19 uh, uh, that, that COVID has, has uh, turned into a, a, an issue now, now that um, you know, kind of we're, we're evidently going to be living with it in the long term. Um, I, I had a, um, kind of a kind of long footnote in my dissertation talking about what R0 was and explaining. <laughs> I wouldn't need to do that now. Everybody knows that's, a, that's an obvious thing. Um, people become uh, interested in things when it starts affecting them. Um, I think that most people are um, somewhat myopic about um, their decision-making. So you know, don't, don't pay as much attention as they should about the um, medium to long-term future. Um, but you know, I think that's a mistake. I think people make a mistake not saving for retirement. People make a mistake in um, not paying attention to these risks. People make a mistake in, um, you know, not spending time thinking about what, what would make their career more meaningful or what would get them, you know, promotions. Like the, the, the obvious things, people, people don't do that. Um, those are hard problems to fix. I don't think we can fix them across the board. Um, luckily, we, we don't need to. Um, we don't need everybody in the world focused on um, long-term, the long-term future in order to um, address these problems. Um, but you know, marginally shifting people's attention um, to longer-term questions and paying attention to um, what the world will be like for their children, or if they're already focused on that for their grandchildren, or if they're already focused on that for their great, 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 great grandchildren. Um, like that seems good. It seems like we should have people who are thinking about all of those things. Um, and, you know, how many people um, in the world should be worried about how it is that humanity will um, continue to survive um, billions of years from now when stars have gone out and um, you know, the, the only source of power is black holes. I don't think that that's something that most people should spend their time on, but I'm glad that there's a guy like Andrew Sandberg who, who's writing a book you know, trying to think about these things because it turns out that like, yeah, one out of seven billion people seems like a reasonable number of people to be thinking about the very, very, very long-term future of humanity. Um, and I think that a lot more than that should be thinking about what happens in a decade. Um, 
And I think that too few are thinking about that. And I think that too few are thinking about what will happen in, in 50 years. And I, yeah, to the extent that we can move people towards thinking more about the long term, um, yeah, that seems valuable. Almost nobody takes zero discount rates seriously. But anyways, um, what are you most optimistic and pessimistic about in this field of uh, general act- activity? Um, so I'm, I'm most optimistic about the fact that um, people are paying attention. It's being discussed. This is, um, you know, there are a lot of problems that um, there are almost all problems I can't solve alone. Um, you know, many, many problems I can't solve with a group of, of me and, you know, uh, 50, 50 smart people working on it. Um, but, but there are almost no problems that all of humanity working together can't solve. Um, I think that um, to the extent that we're growing the community of people who is aware that these are things that should be thought about and that, you know, need some level of attention, I'm, I'm very hopeful that this is actually something that people are thinking about um, and they should continue to do so. Um, you know, that the movement should grow. It should not, you know, I, I, a world where everybody was focused on uh, the long-term future would not be an enjoyable one. But I think a a world where um, more people are would be a better one than the world today. And so I'm I'm hopeful that we're moving in that direction. Um, I'm pessimistic about the speed of change and the the fact that um, so many people are so myopic about, about these issues. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's a scene in The Simpsons um, where uh, there's, there's this uh, hybrid of uh, tomatoes and tobacco um, that is you know, instantly addictive. Um, and you know, there's exactly one plant left um, and Homer is holding on to it. Um, and they're like, oh, well, we'll offer you millions of dollars for this. And Lisa says, no, dad, don't. And, and he says, but, but what can I as an individual do to stop this? And, and she said, just don't, don't sell them the play. Like, what do you mean, what can you as an individual do? Um, I think that there are too many people who are, who are willing to say, but, but what can I as an individual do? And the answer is most people can be doing something. Um, some people can be doing a tremendous amount. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's disappointing how myopic many people are or how cynical many people are about the future. Um, because, you know, I, I firmly believe that um, there are risks out there, but also the future is going to be wonderful if we manage to make through. Like the present is just so much better than the past, um, like, you know, incomparably better than the past. Um, uh, you know, people living, nobody living a thousand years ago had almost any of the things that people now find most enjoyable. Um, you know, a thousand years from now, I, I don't think I can imagine how amazing things are going to be if we manage to um, get our act together. Um, but I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful about it. Um, you know, my, my, I, I expect that um, you know, the odds are very good that my grandchildren will live in a much better world than the one I live in. And that's wonderful. I sometimes feel jealous of them, but on that, on that, uh, on that optimistic note, let's end this. Thank you, David. Absolutely. Thank you.